Frequency is for open-minded thinkers, for observers who are hopelessly curious, for experiencers of the mysterious, and for those who are passionate about perceiving the unknown. I will be sharing with you all my own exceptional experiences and other extraordinary constructs that exist in our reality. Welcome to Access Elysium. What's up and welcome to all of you beautiful souls out there. I am your host, Amber O'Dell, and this is the Access Elysium podcast. So do you have the ability to recall any moment from your past in absolute detail? If so, this ability is called highly superior autobiographical memory, and you are a very rare gem indeed in this existence. So coming up on the show today, we're going to dive into how memories work to create the illusion of reality, memories from past lives, alternative dimensions, and organ transplant recipients, and my own personal and bewildering memory collection. So what the fuck are memories? Man, this one's a big one. (laughs) Memories are tricky. Like I've struggled with trying to really decipher what memories are because for me, I feel like this whole existence here (laughs) goes so deep that I always wonder, is this experience that we're having and that's producing these experiences our memories? Or are these someone else's memories that we are playing out in this existence? So this really goes back to like the simulation theory. If this is some kind of simulation. And when I mean simulation, that's just a standard way of saying this experience has been already happened somewhere else and it's programmed in a certain way to be our existence here like we're playing out parts in a movie or in a play or if this is somebody else's memories you know they want us to experience these memories the way they did or we want to experience these memories how the ones before us experienced it you know what i mean <laughs> Or no, no. (laughs) But so what are memories? Like if these are not my memories that I'm experiencing and they're somebody else's, what does that mean? Okay, so that means that I chose to experience these memories. This life was interesting enough for me to be like, what? I want to experience that. So if there's someone else's memories, and this is a simulation, how many different simulations do I have to choose from to be like, well, this one, this one, this one. I mean, can we piece this whole thing together to create are experienced by lots of different memories. What if the memories that we're playing out here are not just one person's memories? What if all of these memories were like 50 different people's memories all put into one life where I was like, it's like going to the movie theater and being like, oh, I I love this movie because this happened in it. And I love that movie because that happened in it. I love all these movies. Let's take all the best parts of all these movies and make a different movie that I can experience. What the fuck? (laughs) That would be awesome. 
So let's talk about the sciency part of memories. So memories refers to the processes that are used to acquire, store, retain, and then later retrieve information. There are three major processes involved in memory, encoding, storage, and retrieval. So human memory involves the ability to both preserve and recover information that people have learned or experienced. This is not a flawless process. (laughs) We fuck it up all the time. Sometimes people forget or misremember things. Sometimes things are not properly encoded in the memory in the first place. So how does this work? Well, encoding refers to the process through which information is learned. This is how information is taken in, understood, and altered to better support your storage. So Information is usually encoded through one of these four methods. You've got visual encoding, how something looks. Acoustic encoding, this is how something sounds. Somatic encoding, which is how something or what something means. And tactile encoding, which is how something feels. Ooh, I'm a tactile encoder. That's mine (laughs) for sure. Um, I store lots of information based on how I feel most of the time. That's my my definite go-to encoding. But while information typically enters the memory system through one of these modes, the form in which this information is stored may differ from its original form. So even what happens, we can store it differently (laughs) immediately and totally fuck it up from the very beginning. Um, Storage refers to how, where, how much, how long encoded information is retained. Uh, This memory highlights the existence of two types of memory, short-term storage and long-term storage. So encoded information is first stored in short-term memory and then, if needed, is stored in long-term memory. Then we have retrieval, and this is the process through which individuals access the stored information. So encoding, storage, Retrieval. Those are the steps of memories. So how long do memories last? Well, (laughs) uh, some of them are so short, it's like a half a second. (laughs) And some of them last years. So some memories are very, very brief, just seconds, and allow people to take in sensory information about the world around them. This is called sensory memory, and it's the earliest stage of memory. So during this stage, sensory information from the environment is stored for a very brief period of time, generally no longer than a half a second for visual information or three to four seconds for auditory information. So if you saw me and heard what I just said, uh, your sensory memory is done. (laughs) That's it. Not very long. But the next stage is short-term memory. So it's a bit longer for short-term memory. Things last about 20 to 30 seconds. So these memories mostly consist of information people are currently focusing on and thinking about. So it's like in-the-moment stuff. So in Freud, Freud, Freudian, Freudian, hey, that's fun. So <laughs> in Freudian psychology, so you just put like an idiot on there. Okay, so mine would be Odellian psychology. <laughs> okay, that's fun. I'm going to use that sometime. In Freudian psychology, this memory would re- be referred to as the conscious mind. So short-term memories are what we're focusing on right now, which is the conscious mind. 
And paying attention to those generates information for long term. But while many of our short term memories are quickly forgotten, if you focus on them, uh, that gets you to the next stage of long term memory. So these memories are capable of enduring much longer lasting days, weeks, months, or decades. That's the long-term memories. So when areas of the brain connected to memory are damaged, like car accidents or any kind of trauma, the ability to identify smells is actually impaired. So you don't have the memory of smells. Oh, I feel like smells, aren't those like the ones that have the best long-term memories? Like when you smell something from your childhood, bam, you're right back there. I remember <laughs> this will date me too. So I don't know. I think I was inside a Walmart. I don't like going to Walmart very often, but I go there every once in a while. And I just remember walking down an aisle and I had like the smell of a strawberry plasticky kind of smell. And immediately it brought me back to my childhood. And I remembered playing with my strawberry shortcake collection that I had inside of this little um, like rectangular box that you would open up and it had all the little slots to keep all your little strawberry shortcake guys in it. Yes, that memory was instant because smell is connected to long-term memories. But if you damage that part, um, in order to identify a scent, a person must remember when they have smelled it before and then it connects to that visual information that occurred. So if you lose that memory of the smell, you lose the memory of the whole thing. Oh, how sad. So if I got damaged somewhere and forgot what strawberry plastic smelled like, (laughs) I couldn't remember my strawberry shortcake stuff from when I was a kid. Man, that's crazy. So where are memories stored? Well, some scientists believe that our memories are stored in the brain. But there are many scientists that don't agree with that. But the human brain is continuously making thoughts. And these thoughts were created by some sort of sensory information. So remember that feelings come before your thoughts. And that's how your body organizes all these senses. Information is always entering the brain. It's stimulating it and creating a thought, which may last last seconds or sometimes the information is strong enough to create a memory that lasts years. But your senses play the most important role in forming memories. So because our brain utilizes different levels of memories, things which are lower level of attention get forgotten. The brain continually discards those in order to make more room for new memories. So we forget shit all the time. Well, I found on the internet a place, the scienceexplore.com, where they did an article on our your memories real states that according to a study at Northwestern University, when we remember something, we actually remember the last time we recalled the memory as opposed to remembering the actual event. What? <laughs> so this means we never actually remember anything that happened to us the actual event. We are only remembering our memories. Whoa. So we aren't getting anything exact as far as I'm concerned, if that's the case. We're fucking this shit up all the time. 
So each time we remember something, the memory can be affected and altered by our thoughts, our perceptions, and our emotions. So slight changes in the memory of an event each time it is recalled can eventually snowball into a completely false memory, one that we will firmly believe to be true as it evolved in our own minds. Memories are stored with the information of particular proteins in the brain, and then these proteins can be reformed and modified each time the memory is recalled. So numerous studies have proven that even those with the sharpest exceptional memories are not immune to memory distortion. And it's reasonable to assume that we've all unknowingly experienced the strange phenomenon of false memories throughout our lives. I mean, I wonder if we were to take like a test to see if we could remember exactly what happened in specific things, what that percentage would be. I mean, are we going to fail? Like (laughs) failing is what? You get a D if you're under 60%. What if we can't even remember 60% of what actually happens to us? We are all failing (laughs) at remembering our own existence all the time. I mean, can you remember exactly what I said 13 minutes ago when I started this podcast. Can you even remember 60% of what I've said? We know nothing. So let's talk about photographic memories. So photographic memory is the ability to recall a past scene in detail with great accuracy. Now, not perfect accuracy. I I don't think that's been proven to be a thing, but with great accuracy. So just like a photograph. So generally, we're better remembering what we've seen than what we've heard. So the notion of a photographic memory is that the it's just like a photograph. You you can retrieve it from your memory at will and examine it in detail, zooming in on different parts. So that's that's kind of what a photographic memory is. You can really get those details as accurate as possible. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci and Nikola Tesla are said to have possessed photographic memory. Swami, I don't know, Swami. <laughs> is believed to have Oedipic, I don't know what that means, Oedipic, nope, but it's a memory (laughs) that he could memorize a book just by going through it a single time. So the mathematician John von Neumann was able to memorize a column of the book at a single glance. Holy moly. I mean, I bet you he did really good in school because <laughs> school is pretty much just about memorizing shit and that's it. Um, C.S. Lewis, a scholar and theologian widely, widely acclaimed to be the best read man of his generation, one who read and remembers everything that he reads. In his mid-teens, Lewis was reading classical and contemporary works in Latin, Greek, Italian, French, and German. Lewis seemed to remember most of what he had read, and one notable story from his student is someone who could quote any line from Milton's epic Paradise Lost, and Lewis would continue the rest of the line from his memory. Another student stated that he could take any book from Lewis's shelf, open a page at random to read, and Lewis could summarize the rest of the page. That's awesome. Okay, I think I figured out how to say this. 
eidetic memory. Okay, eidetic memory is what it's called to be a photographic memory or a total recall. Eidetic. <laughs> I think that's how I do it. But that's the ability to recall an image from memory with high precision for a brief period after only seeing it once. I also found on the bbc.com a article on the man who can remember every day of his life. Bob Petrella can remember every moment in his life. <laughs> uh, okay, so I have lots of memories that I don't want to remember just because, you know, life is shit sometimes. Things happen to you when you're a kid. Oh, shit's awkward. Or, you know, exes or just things where you get embarrassed or stuff. You're like, oh, God, I hope that never happens again. He can relive every single one of these moments at will. So Bob Petrella can recall any moment from his past. It's called highly superior autobiographical memory. And there are around 60 known cases around the world. It's almost like having a time machine where I can go back to a certain day or a certain period in my life and almost feel like I'm back there. It's very visceral, he says. Petrella explains that being able to go back to certain times in his life has helped him. Like when he was grieving, it was very therapeutic to go back to these times and these memories. I feel like I'm still with them in a way. Aww. That is awesome. I can see how that would be very lovely. Uh, for some people, however, the condition is a hindrance rather than a help. So Rebecca Sherrick. Sherrick? I'm the worst. An Australian woman with the condition told the BBC Future in 2017, if I'm remembering an incident that happened when I was three, my emotional response to the situation is like a three-year-old, even though my mind and conscious are like an adult. And this disparity can lead to confusion and anxiety. Wow, I didn't even think about that. That would be very stressful, like not having all of the aptitude of an adult and going back to that response as a three-year-old. But for others, it's a joy. In 2016, Vima Viesh, <laughs> I got to get someone to help me with these names, who also has the condition, told BBC, it makes him a kinder, more tolerant person. Some say forgive and forget, but since forgetting is a luxury I don't have, I need to learn to genuinely forgive, he says, not just others, but myself as well. Oh, what a beautiful way to look at that. Honestly, because forgiveness is one of the most important things in life to learn, but not just forgiving other people, forgiving yourself is such a hard thing to do. If you can do it well, man, you're on your way there. So do people with photographic memory remember when they were a baby? Well, in fact, you can probably only come up with like a handful of memories from between the age of three and seven. Although family photo albums and other videos can cue triggered memories easier that way, but psychologists refer to this inability of most adults to remember events from early life, including their birth, as childhood amnesia. So when we're kids, we kind of forgot about the whole illusion of this place. 
So because memory, it turns out, is an illusion, one that we create every time that we recall the past. What? That's mind-blowing. Okay, so rather than like a filing cabinet, you know, it's an exquisite illusion that shapes your sense of self. So when considering what makes us who we are, it's easy to think our memories are the answer. Aside from physical traces of like, you know, passing of time on your body, body gets old, look, you're getting older. Uh, Your recollections are perhaps the only thing that links you, the one that's sitting here today, right now, to the many yous from every previous day of your existence. Without them, your relationships would mean nothing, not to mention your knowledge, your tastes, your smells, all of your adventures. It might be no exaggeration to say that your memories are the essence of you. So I found this thing on the internet. I don't even know where. I forgot. Good. I didn't write it down. (laughs) But it's called Primal Healing. And it kind of addresses the whole childhood amnesia research where they say some people claim to recall pre-verbal memories and even recollections from the womb. So inside Jamama, one form of psychoanalysis called primal healing focuses on traumatic early memories similar to Sigmund Freud's theory of repressed and screened memories. So primal therapy links people's present pain with the pain of birth, taking patients back to the memory of their birth in a process referred to as rebirthing. However, in spite of anecdotal evidence, no scientific study has verified the authenticity. Authenticity. Words are fucking hard today. Authenticity of these rebirthing experiences. Okay, so story time. I did a rebirthing experience when I was a child. So it was pretty cool. This um, very nice friend of my my dad's, she was a massage therapist working for my dad. And she was this awesome um, Native American lady who I don't even know how we first ended up like hanging out with her, but she really helped me through some different things as a kid being a weird kid and finally like kind of figuring out what some of the shit is going on for me was like supernatural stuff that I was like, oh, okay, it made more sense. So she did this rebirth with me and it was, I don't know, I think I might've been like 10, 11, 12 years old. And we used to go over to her house and we do all kinds of arts and crafts stuff. She was super cool. Sometimes we would stay the night. Me and my sister would both go over there. And so this time she wanted to try a rebirth on me. And I was like, I'm ready. So it was this breathing process of slowing down your breath. And it was breath work that she would then start to move backwards so that you could get as close to your birth in memories of what you know would come to the surface of retrieving those memories and I do remember just a few slight things it seemed like I remembered that there was a lot of people looking down like from way up above and that there was a lot of commotion going on Um, And that there was this woman who had these big glasses that were always really close to me. And uh, kind of going back and talking to my mom afterwards, she was like, oh, well, that makes a little bit of sense. Um, She was 
born or she was born here. I was born in a situation where it was an emergency C-section that they had to do. It was a pretty traumatic death. Death. Holy moly. (laughs) I am on one today. Well, you know, it probably was a death. I had to die somewhere else to be born here. So it was a traumatic death. But so it was a traumatic birth. And I know that they ended up not cutting open enough for them to get me out from the c-section so they had to tear my mom open which caused all kinds of internal bleeding for her and then I wasn't very responsive I think my apgar was like one I was purple it was kind of crazy but um, she was in this uh, hospital where all these students were there observing the situation from uh, a kind of more of an aerial view. And that was what was going on with all these people kind of looking down from very high. And then something even crazier than that happened. So I, I kind of had those memories and then everything goes blank for a while. And the next thing I remember is floating above myself, looking down at myself being embalmed inside of this tomb-like area. (laughs) I know. I don't know if that was the last life I decided I was playing around with before I came into this one, but that was the very next memory I had moving backwards. And I, I vividly remember the guy who was doing the embalming had like his head shaved all the way back to the top of his head. But then there was like this little spot where it was a long ponytail coming out. And oh, it was kind of strange. And when I came out of it, I like was trying to explain it to her and we kind of wrote it all down and she took it to this Indian chief guy to kind of analyze everything. Because I was a weird kid. So much fun. Rebirthing, super cool. Like it really did help to kind of open up some different memories that you wouldn't have otherwise remembered. So here is what I found on science.howstuffworks.com where they did an article on amnesia. So imagine waking up in your bedroom with no idea of where you are. Something feels familiar about the cotton sheets, the pictures on the wall, the sheer curtains, but you can't place it. Minutes later, you feel that same sensation of waking up, but this time you're standing at your dresser wearing a t-shirt and jeans with no recollection of ever having been in bed. It's as though your consciousness lacks a past and a future, like a stop motion film in which every previous frame is destroyed. Oh my God. Like this sounds fucking stressful, but there's this guy named Clive Waring who lives in that perpetual present. So he's just living in the now, which, you know, everybody's always like, be present, but without your past or your future, whoa, what does your present even look like? So this British musician and musicologist has the worst case of amnesia ever recorded. His memory spans uh, like a few seconds before it washes away in the blink of an eye and starts new. Triggered by a case of herpes, whoopsies, uh, which infects the brain and causes it to swell, Waring's amnesia has left him in a state of constant awakening in every kiss, every conversation, every cup of tea or coffee is his first. What did they say? Herpes can do this to you? 
I did not know that. I might have to look into that more. That's kind of crazy. Like, what? So the encephalitis herpes eroded Warian's ability to make new memories, severing any recollection of the recent past. So according to a New Yorker profile on him, something as simple as eating an apple would seem almost like a magic trick to his mind. One moment he holds a whole apple in his hand and then the next there's nothing left but the core. It's like magic. Uh, this sounds fucking horrible. Unlike most amnesia cases in which older memories are preserved, much of Waring's long-term like memories of specific facts and events have completely disappeared. His motor skills or general intelligence remain intact. It's the memory of using them that's disconnected. So for instance, he still plays the piano very well, but he wouldn't remember doing it, much less what song he played. This is crazy. I mean, can you imagine living your whole life like that? What would, how would you decide to how to finally deal with that? I mean, you're just accepting that this life is a magic window that reopens every few minutes. This sounds exhausting. I don't know. Maybe it's, Maybe it's super cool and he has nothing to worry about. What the fuck? He doesn't even know what a worry is. He can't even remember to worry. Whoa. Well, the nuisance of his fragmented memories reflect the complexity of amnesia and the human brain. Super complex. So Waring has always remembered his wife, Deborah which is fabulous. Oh my gosh, at least he has one person that he is familiar with in his life. Uh, but yet he cannot immediately recall the name of his favorite composer. And in conversations about his life, he can like talk about some events. However, it's sometimes unclear whether his stories spring from true memories or just his imagination. Maybe he's just imagining everything. So oh, it's like a dream. He's living completely in a dream. But you know what? How do we know that that's not what we're all doing right now? Well, memories are not just a human quality. There are multiple things that exist in our reality that have memories. So for instance, I found on the resonancescience.org uh, website where they have found that water has memory. Water. Yes, a new groundbreaking discovery has been made within the most basic of resources. Scientists have just discovered what they've called the discovery of the millennium and a huge revelation in human consciousness. So scientists from Germany now believe that water has a memory, meaning that once it was seen as just a simple commodity has now been closely examined to reveal a scientific revelation. So when they examined individual drops of water at an incredibly high magnification, scientists were able to physically see that each droplet of water has its own individual microscopic pattern. I mean, hello, we know that. It's like snowflakes, right? But um, each indistinguishable from the next and uniquely beautiful. Yes, like snowflakes. A scientific experiment was carried out whereby a group of students were all encouraged to obtain one drop of water from the same body of water all at the same time. So through close examination of individual droplets, it was seen that each produced different images. 
So every single drop of water from the same water, so you would think that if it's all from the same thing of water, it would all have the same images, but no, they're all different. So a second experiment was then carried out where a real flower was placed into a body of water and after a while, a sample droplet of water was taken out for examination. The results produced a mesmerizing pattern when hugely magnified, but all of the droplets of this water looked very similar. When the same experiment was done with a different species of flower, the magnified droplet looked completely different, thereby determining that a particular flower is evident in each droplet of water. It was remembering the flower that was in the water every single time. A German scientist believed that as water travels, it picks up and stores information from all of the places that it has traveled through, which can thereby connect people to a lot of different places and sources of information when they drink this water, depending on the journey that it has been on. Oh my God, this is awesome. So we <laughs> can actually take in information from drinking water because it holds information from everywhere where it's been. Ew, this is amazing. So this has been compared to the human body of which each is incredibly unique and has an individual DNA unlike any other. Then the human body is made up of 70% you know, water and conclusions could be drawn from these new discoveries that human tears can hold a unique memory of an individual being through the body's stored water, hosting a completely different set of information that's linked to that individual's experiences. Oh my God, this is so cool. So it suggests that everyone is globally connected by the water in the human body, which travels through ongoing journeys. I feel like this is one of the coolest things that literally connects every single living thing on the planet. So then if it's possible that water can remember where it's been, where what's been near it, and who has handled it in the past, man, we have the capabilities to reconnect with any living thing on the planet with just water. And you know what else has memories? Plants have memories. Yeah, so I found on scientificamerica.com, they did this article on do plants think, and they absolutely do. So plants definitely have several different forms of memories, just like people. They have short-term memories, they have immune memories, and they even have transgenerational memories. I know this sounds crazy, but Follow me here. So um, they have different forms of memory, like encoding information, just like we do, retaining the memory, like storing it like we do, and recalling the memory. So retrieving it and recalling it just like us. So plants definitely remember they have memories. So for example, a Venus flytrap needs to have two of the hairs on its leaves touched by a bug in order to shut. So it remembers that the first one has been touched, but this only lasts about 20 seconds and then it forgets. Uh, wheat seedlings remember that they've gone through winter before they start to flower and make seeds. And some stressed plants give rise to uh, progeny, I think that's what that says, that they are more resistant to the same stress and the type of transgenerational memories that have been recently shown in animals. So the stressful situations of having like 
a really hard winter are put in the memories of those plants so they are better prepared for the next winter. So well, in the short-term memory in the Venus flytrap is like electricity-based, much like the neural activity in a person, but the longer-term memories are based on epigenetics. So changes in gene activity that don't require alterations in the DNA code, um, like mutations, which are passed down from the parents of the offspring. They're using memories. So studies at all levels of life have implied that individual cells or networks of non-neural cells are capable of forming memories. So cells inside of all of our bodies and plants and living things have memories. So clearly brains and nerves are not the last place that have memories. So how much memory does a cell have? Hmm. Well, I found on dailymail.co.uk dot blah, blah, blah. <laughs> This is a long one. It's so they talk about like our genetic codes in our DNA and our individual cells. So this guy Moeller worked out an entire code from our genetic DNA and he came to the conclusion that each cell holds 1.5 gigabytes of data. Yeah. We're we are storage <laughs> like hardware, external, internal, everything has storage and memory. So if you expand this into the whole genetic code, so let's just say um, that he used binary principles to assign two bits of information for each molecule in the DNA and then converted it to equal 1.5 gigabytes. But this means the entire code of a person could be stored on a standard DVD. And this is the equivalent to like 6,709 books per person. But alternatively, the code could hold 511 digital photos if each of them were three megabytes apiece. <laughs> so like we're comparing computers to you know, bodies, because that's kind of what we are. We're just organic computers. So they also found out that, you know, most humans, well, all humans are 99.9% .9 genetically the same. There's only 0.1 difference in all of us. So every time somebody wants to be all, you're different from me and I don't like that and I have a problem with this person because they're different. No, they're actually not. <laughs> you are 99.9 .9 the same as every other human on this planet. I mean, I feel like I, one place I found that we're only about point something different from a flower. Like we are not very different from all the other living things that are happening. So I also found on Rockefeller.edu that they talk about how cells can remember inflammation. So when a tissue experiences inflammation, its cells remember it. So pinning proteins to its genetic material at the height of inflammation, the cells bookmark where they left off in their last like problem, problematic area. So the next exposure inflammatory memory kicks in. So then cells draw from prior experience to respond more effectively, even to threats that they have not even encountered before. So skin heals a wound faster if it's previously exposed to an irritant because it remembers it. Cells have memory. 
So now a new study in uh, stem cell uh, experiments describes the mechanism behind inflammatory memory and also commonly refers to it as trained immunity. So this is how you gain immunity in the body because your body remembers how to attack those kinds of issues. But scientists have long suspected that even cells that are not traditionally involved in the immune system have this ability to remember prior insults and learns from the experience. Like your whole body can learn from certain things. Memories from one cell can be passed to another cell like they're talking to each other to help communicate the issues. Oh, so cool. Also, so everybody thinks, you know, well, they used to think that the brain is the only place that stores our memories. And obviously this is not true. So the theory of cellular theory states that memories, as well as personality traits, are not only stored in the brain, but also can be stored in organs such as the heart. So in 2009, well, a while ago, Harvard Medical School defined cellular memories as sustained cellular response to stimulus. So basically, when a cell is introduced to stimulus, it will react in a certain way every time um, that it's given that stimulus, it will have you know, the same response. But so one of the more famous cases includes a woman named Claire Sylvia. In the 70s, this woman received a heart and lung transplant from an 18-year-old boy who died in a motorcycle accident. After her surgery, Sylvia had cravings she had never before had, like beer and burgers, typical 18-year-old, I guess from the 70s. Hopefully not too many 18-year-olds are craving beer right now. <laughs> After some time, she contacted the family of her donor and was in shock that he enjoyed the same foods that she was craving now on, on a regular basis. Another extreme case was an eight-year-old girl who received a 10-year-old's heart from another girl. After her operation, she began to have nightmares of a man trying to kill her. Ugh, that's not fun. Her dreams were so vivid that she went to a psychiatrist who actually believed that they were real. It was found that the donor was murdered. Ugh, and the recipient who had the nightmares described the man in such detail that the police were able to find the killer and he was convicted of her murder. Holy shit. That is, can you imagine being a 10 year old girl and having this happen to you to the point where it's so real you could find your donor's killer? I can't, I can't even imagine how crazy that would be. So this just goes to show that even in your organs, your memories of who you are, who you've built yourself to be, who you think that you are, is engraved in the cells of every part of your body. So if you take that out and you put it in somebody else's body, they now have your memory. So does that mean that they somehow become you? I mean, how else would you explain that? Because now it's a part of you. You are now a part of somebody else. Those memories could get like entwined in yours. And now those new memories are who you are as well. Okay, so humans can inherit memories through organ transplants. And this is a result of cellular memory transfer. You are like, hey, bro, you want some of my memories? Here you go. Uh, so this hypothesis stems from the speculation that memories inhabit all the cells in the body. Got it. We're there. Okay, so now they found that to explain post-transplant parallelisms, 
parallelisms. That's a fun one. Between organ donors and recipients, a study was conducted by changes in heart transplant recipients that parallel the personalities of their donors involving interviews with like 10 heart transplants recipients, 10 heart lung recipients and their families and friends. So also interviewed were families and friends of the deceased donors to compare. So now there's all of these previously non-existing things that are happening to the person who is the recipient of the donor. So the things that are exhibiting change in them is now their food preferences, their music preferences, their art preferences, their sexual preferences, recreational activities that they enjoy, and career preferences. All of these things are changing in the new recipients because they were related to the interests of the donor. So this shows that the body is a holistic system that can even preserve memories in organs, or rather that organs are a means of memory inheritance. So what happens is this kind of memory transfer uh, will eventually spread from that organ to the rest of the body. So this person that you were before is now intertwined with the new person and you are a new blend. You're like a mutant. (laughs) You're a whole new person. And they're showing that this kind of memory transfer is only present um, in complex organs. So we're talking hearts, lungs, livers, uh, things that have uh, what is it here? Well, so they're saying like uh, cornea transfers have not been reported to show a lot of memory transfer because it's the idea that nerve cells are chemically connected to memory. And so the more nerves present in the organ being transplanted has more significant uh, memory transfer. So this totally makes me think of that movie from like the early 90s. What was it called? Body Parts where it's the same scenario like this dude gets into a car wreck and he has like this experimental surgery where they give him like they do a transplant for his entire arm from a donor and afterwards he starts having all these visions of killing people and then his arm starts to like respond in ways that wants to like kill people and then he gets his new fingerprint like searched up and he finds out that his arm was donated by a serial killer I mean this really isn't that far-fetched if you have an arm from a serial killer attached to your body with those memories does that mean that you could possibly turn into a serial killer because those kinds of memories are then going to soak into the rest of your body and you will start to have those same urges So (laughs) I would really start doing some research on the donors that you are going to receive something from. I mean, I get it. Like if you're in a situation where it's a life saving emergency to receive a, you know, an organ, how do you be like, well, is this dude like a nice guy? What kind of food does he eat? What kind of music? I mean, I don't want to turn into (laughs) like a crazy serial killer, but yeah. That's kind of what this sounds like. 
Now, here is some really cool shit that I love to dig into. So I found on med.virginia.edu, they are talking about children who report memories of past lives. So some young children, usually between the ages of two and five, speak about memories of a previous life they claim to have lived. At the same time, they often show behaviors such as phobias or preferences that are unusual within the context of their particular family and cannot be explained by any current life events. And these memories appear to be connected with the child's statements about a previous life. This is so much fun to dig into. Okay, so in many cases of this type, the child's statements have been shown to correspond accurately to facts in the life and death of a deceased person. And some of these children even have birthmarks and birth defects that correspond to the wounds or marks on the deceased person whose life is being remembered by the child. In numerous cases, post-mortem reports have confirmed these correspondences. <laughs> so like the coroner is like, yep, the dude died like this. How did you know? Older children may retain these uh, memories, but generally they seem to fade around the age of seven. So for the past 20 some years, Dr. Jim Tucker had done studies mainly focusing on cases found in the U.S. of children with memories of past lives. His book, Return to Life, offers accounts of very strong American cases who remember uh, these crazy things. So there is a well-known case of James Leninger. I hope that's how you say it. But he was a young boy who had verifiable past life memories of being a World War II pilot. So in this book, James, who was a little more than two weeks, was a little more than two weeks after his second birthday, so he just turned two, began having blood-curdling nightmares that would not stop. So when James began screaming out reoccurring phrases like, plane on fire, little man can't get out, the family finally admitted that they truly had to take notice to this to figure out what was going on. So when details of planes and war tragedies that <laughs> no two year old boy should have known continued uh, even in like daylight this wasn't even in his sleep anymore his parents began to realize that this was uh, kind of an incredible situation and they needed to look into it further so they had to piece together what their son was communicating and eventually discovered that he was reliving the past life of World War II fighter pilot James Huston as his dad struggled to understand what was happening to his son, uh, they also uncovered details of James Huston's life and his death as a pilot that would fascinate military buffs everywhere. So this is crazy cool, incredible stuff. They verified exactly things from this kid stating pieces of a life he lived before this one. He still had memories from a past life. Okay, so if memories are now, we know memories are stored in water, memories are stored in our cells, memories are stored in all kinds of conscious life. 
Memories have to also be stored somewhere else if we are retrieving them from a life that does no longer exist right now. So where is that information stored? Are we talking about like the Akashic Records? Are we tapping into like infinite consciousness that we're all a part of? Where does that link? How do you tap into that? Where is that storage? Like, is, is that that special magic time when kids are so close to the veil of crossing over that they still have access to that? Where is that access happening? <laughs> this is what I need to know. But if you think you have a child who is expressing memories from a past life, here are statements that they might make. You're not my mommy or my daddy. Oh, that would be heartbreaking to hear if my kids thought I wasn't their mommy. No, I'm your mommy, okay? (laughs) But another one is, I have another mommy or daddy. When I was big, I used to have blue eyes or had a car. Uh, That happened before I was in mommy's tummy. I have a wife or a husband or children. Can you imagine your kid saying they had a husband or a wife or kids? I used to drive a truck like in another town or I died in a car accident or I died after I fell or I remember when I lived in that other house and had another daddy. I mean, these statements are just baffling, but so incredibly interesting. <laughs> oh, I would love to dig into the mind of a little kid that was having this happen to them and just listen to what they would say. Okay, so here is kind of an example of what memories from an alternative dimension is like. So there is this thing called the Mandela effect. And this is when there are there's an individual or a group of people that remember specifically that something was different in the past than what it is proven to be today. So for instance, uh, in 2010, the phenomenon was dubbed the Mandela effect by a paranormal researcher Fiona, who reported having a vivid and detailed memory of the news coverage of the South African leader Nelson Mandela dying in prison in the 1980s. She said, I thought I remembered it clearly, complete with the news clips of his funeral, the mourning in South Africa, and some rioting in the cities, and the heartfelt speech by his widow. I mean, that's a lot of memories to remember from something that did not happen. And then she found out he was still alive. But the thing is, it's not just her that remembers that. There are a ton of people that have the same memory of Nelson Mandela dying in prison in the 1980s. How is that possible? Okay, so if this did happen and people are still retrieving these memories from their storage, this could have happened in an alternative dimension and then something changed that split our reality to make that moment not in this existence anymore. It is now in an alternative existence. What can cause (laughs) a split like that to change our reality, but for us to still have access to those memories. This is 
fucking awesome shit we're talking about here. <laughs> this is my favorite kind of weird stuff, guys. So did you know that a wonderful memory of something that never actually happened to you will make you happier than a wonderful but wholly forgotten actual event? <laughs> Think about that. So something that never happened and you remember it, like somehow you've made this memory up and it's wonderful. It, it makes you happier than an actual event that was wonderful but you completely forgot it. What the fuck is going on here? So (laughs) if you don't even remember something that happened, did it ever really happen? Or if you're remembering something that didn't happen, did it really happen? (laughs) Does it even matter? Like what in the end (laughs) are memories... I don't even know now, (laughs) but I do know that I'm so thankful that I have the opportunity to ponder these kinds of ideas in this existence. I mean, what an awesome life to live here in the now, to have all of these questions about this awesome universe that we live in that just makes us baffled with all of these mysteries. I mean, this is my favorite part of being alive. So here is my call to all of you experiencers out there. If you have had some kind of totally fucking awesome experience with your memories, I would love to hear about it. So please contact us at accesselysium at gmail.com and give me all the dates I need to know. Well, I hope that you guys have enjoyed the time that we have spent here together. And in all of this crazy explanation of memories in a fundamental sense we are our memories or the memories we don't have i mean no matter how you look at it what i hope is that all of you remember how amazing and special you all are individually and that you never forget that the memories you make here will last somewhere in this cosmos forever so make the best of it because I've got more memories to create with you guys and I can't wait to do it on the next episode of Access Elysium Podcast.